Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Tuesday, June 14th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, a feature interview with one of the most important Canadian photographers of all time. I don't think we have enough. I don't think we have enough photographers on our radio show. Edward Bertinsky will be here to talk not just about his uh, photographs of industrial landscapes, his photographs that teach us about the impact that we and, and industry and the things we use and the things that we own actually have on the earth that we live on, and what it means to him to be able to show these images not in an art gallery, but in sort of the home of commerce, the home of advertising in Canada at Young Dundas Square in downtown Toronto, which if you've never been – like picture New York's Times Square with all those video screens and all those advertisements everywhere. All those screens, all those advertisements taken up by Edward Bertinsky's work showing actually the impact of everything around you and where it came from. So we talk a little bit about how he found his calling. We talk a little bit about why photography, why art is the best way to talk about uh, the environment, and a little bit about his own family who um, came to Canada from Ukraine. After that, you're going to hear from Alan Doyle, who you, of course, might know from Great Big C, you know, one of the, this country's greatest performers, best kind of fella. He's here to talk about his new musical, Telltale Harbor, and why he's spending his summer telling the story of a small town in Charlottetown at the festival there. All right, show starts now. Bonjour, ici Denis Villeneuve. Hi, I'm Emily St. John Mandel. Hi, my name is Riz Ahmed, and you're listening to Q. Vous écoutez Q. And you're listening to Q with Tom Power. Edward Bertinsky works in some of the most toxic and desolate places on Earth. For decades, the Canadian photographer has chronicled the impact of human industry on the planet with massive photographs of things like open pit mines, oil fields, and scrapyards. Edward will tell you how he found his calling and how he put together his biggest project yet. Edward Bertinsky is coming up. Plus, Alan Doyle has spent most of his life on stage, either playing with his old band, Great Big C, or playing on his own. Now he's on stage in a different way. Alan will tell you about his new musical. It's called Telltale Harbor and the classic Canadian film it's based on. That's coming up on Q. Edward Bertinsky wants to show you things you can't unsee. Whether it's photos of factories in his hometown of St. Catharines, Ontario, or fluorescent rivers of mine tailings in Florida, or mammoth shipbreaking yards in Bangladesh, Edward Bertinsky captures the underbelly of human ambition and how it's reshaped our planet. He's also known for making very big photographs, like massive photographs, like the size of an entire wall. And actually, his latest project is his biggest yet, not just in terms of size, but in terms of scope. So it's called uh, In the Wake of Progress, and it's sort of images that span his entire career. But check this out. This past weekend, these images were displayed not at an art gallery. They were displayed at Young and Dundas Square in Toronto. If you can't 
picture that. Like picture um, New York's Times Square and all those massive advertising screens. And all of those advertising screens are showing Edward Bertinsky's photos, all with a soundtrack playing in the background. In the Wake of Progress will also run later this month at the Canadian Opera Company Theatre. Edward Bertinsky is one of Canada's greatest photographers ever. And he joined me in person to talk about it all. How are you? Great to be here, Tom. How are you feeling before the um, exhibition starts at Young and Dundas? Excited, actually. Um, we did a version of it last uh, summer, and we turned it into a film and also got to test it all out. So I'm not that nervous about it. I know it works to sync up all of those screens and to get the color and the density. And uh, there are eight different companies that run those screens. They're all different vintages. Uh, there's 22 of them. And we had to get like eight servers into their rooms where they deliver the data to the screens and then sync it all up. So it's been a bit of a Herculean task from a technical point of view, but uh, I know that works. So I'm not worried about that, but it's, it's kind of, I'm very excited to see what it feels like as a public experience because it was a film set last time and now it's a public experience. Are you, are you going to go down? And have yeah, a, I'll be there. I was wondering if you were going to go down and be there and people would know you were there and see if you can watch people watch it? Well, I'm going to have a mask on. So I'm thinking of hiding <laughs> with my mask and walking in the back and seeing how the reaction is. Because it is interesting. People will be like leaving the Eaton Center in Nordstrom. They just bought something. And all of a sudden, you look at those screens and it's like a feedback loop. This is where all that stuff comes from. I'm showing the kind of places that we don't normally get to see, you know, uh, looms in China, people working away, sewing all those clothes in China. And that's part of the scenery. So I wanted to kind of have a feedback loop to the center of commerce in the country, one, one would argue, Dundas and Young. And, and when I was asked to do something, you know, with a square and all the screens, I thought, well, why not show the world in which all the stuff, the buildings that it takes to make this square, the, yeah. all the you know, stuff inside the shops that people go to buy, um, and why not have that arc of, of, of that which actually follows my work over the last 40 years. So well, I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit later, especially around the idea of walking out of that mall and looking around and seeing screens of the places that the mall might have come from, the parts of the mall might have come from. But I suppose we should get there. First off, can you tell me a little bit about In the Wake of Progress? Uh, where does that come from? Yeah, well, it's like, think of it as, you know, we are in the present moment and, and, and we're the, 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 the front of the bow of the ship and everything behind as we go through, as we consume every day, as we eat the food we need and buy the things and get in the car and go on a plane, all of that is, is, is being consumed by each of us every day. And to, to me, that's the, the forward thrust of humanity. And in the wake is all the things, you know, the waste streams, the, you know, the, 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 the further having to go to these mines to get more of these materials, the, the food that has to come from those fields. So, so it, that is the wake behind us that is ever growing. So let's, let's go back to the beginning here. So your, your father worked at the General Motors plant? Yes. In St. Catharines yes. in Ontario. Yep. And the story, as I heard it, is that you got to go in one day and you see sort of the guts of the cars, the guts of industry. And that's sort of a big, big moment for you. Am I right about that? Yeah. And I was seven years old and, and uh, they started doing these open houses. It was the first time they did it. And it, 
going in there, and my mo- my father worked in the engine plant, so they were you know pouring you know, engine blocks. So it was molten red metal, you know, going into this block. Uh, and then there was this, you know, the pounding of the forge that I always heard. And I used to say my father works there. But as we'd go by, it's boom, boom, boom. You know, and uh, finally, I'm standing in front of one of these forges at, at seven years old looking up. And there's these men in, in these, you know, silver suits and this mask and red hot ingots. And they're just using a floor pedal and they're just flipping this ingot from one set of die to another and flipping it through. And they can only work there like for 20 minutes and they have to flip because it's so hot because of the furnaces. Yeah. And it was just, you know, finally I made a connection to that sound and, and just seeing, uh, you know, industry on the inside and the fact that, that this place, this kind of huge construct of machinery is what's necessary to make the car that I'd be driving back and forth, you know, on the street and going past that plant. And that connection that we – we don't ever understand where what it takes to make the things that that we use every day um i think became a seed of of an idea of wouldn't it be interesting to to reveal photographically cuz you know the 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 camera and the, you know, both still and and film camera right. are are perfectly suited to translate those worlds to us and were you taking photos at this point I really – I wasn't. Uh, my father was like, uh, you know, artist at heart and so I was always, you know, painting with him or doing stage sets with him. Uh, so he was always making something and I, I got that gene. I need to be making something or I don't feel like I'm actually alive. You know, the, if I stop making things, I seem to regress. So it is something that's part of my DNA. But um, he – I painted with him and then at age 11, we ended up with a dark room. He, he ended up buying a darkroom from uh, a lady who was selling it in the St. Catherine Standard. We set it up. Uh, I got to read all the manuals. Uh, a friend across the street had a darkroom. He was a few years older than me. He showed me how to mix all the chemicals, how to do the agitation, the time and temperature. What was that, that like for you? Was that It was magic. It was totally magic. I mean, I, I remember as like my favorite thing. Uh, as an 11-year-old kid was my dog. I mean, we just went everywhere. What and was the dog's it, name? Tippy. Tippy. Yeah. What kind Tippy. of dog was it? A mutt. Right. It's just like, you know, a, we, a mutt that I think we actually found. Right. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, my dad says here, like the, the box that we got from this lady that had like three cameras in a box. And she says, you know, he says, pick one out. It was a Minolta A. I picked it out. But the interesting thing was that there was a three rolls of Tri-X film, 100-foot rolls and cassettes. And I can just spool off whatever I wanted. So I spooled off. 36. I put it in the camera, cut the tongue out, put it in the camera. I went out and it was wintertime and I shot because I wanted to do something. So I needed a test roll. So I figured out how to meter it. And I shot 36 pictures of my dog jumping in the snow and just playing with them. And then I went back and processed the film. And then it was like later on that night. So I was I had to dry and everything. And then I couldn't wait. And I got the neighbor kid to come in again. I said, show me how to enlarge it. So we put one of the negatives in the enlarger, made an eight by 10. And and in that orange glow, so there's a safe light and it's orange. And I remember putting the paper in the tray and my dog emerges, you know, uh, in this tray. And and again, it was like a 36 pictures of, of my dog and I had to pick one so I had to make a contact sheet. So, you know, and one just seemed to always be better than the rest. And right. that's interesting because it's something I've, I've done for the rest of my life is – you know, taking more than one and somehow that slightly different location or slightly different point of view, the moment yeah. is better than the one before. It's a know? funny thing, hey, and he's no, he, 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 sometimes you can't tell why. I find that with music. Like you'll do eight takes 
of the same thing and everyone in the room will agree on what take was the right one. But no one will be able to know why it was the right one. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just something. Yeah, it, 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 something just comes together. Some golden mean, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, arrives, and everything is in perfect proportion, and all of that. But it, again, watching the that magic, and to me, it was magic. It's like all of a sudden, the three dimensional world that I was running around in is now this two dimensional object. You know, kind of fixed in time. You know, and I understood that too. That that now I have this picture of my dog, and I'll remember this day, and I'll you know, and here it is. And it was just, and it was so much more fun and immediate than painting with my dad. I, I liked it, yeah. but but you know, I wanted to play with my friends, and and so this allowed me to take the camera out with me all the time, and I wasn't you know in front of this easel and painting away and trying to make a landscape. I could just run out there in a fraction of a second. I'd have it. There's not many. Um children of GM workers that I would know that would go into the arts the way you did, even like to study the arts the way that you did. How old were you when your father passed away, if you don't mind me asking? Fifteen. I mean, it's a hard hard age to lose your dad. Yeah, it was difficult because my mother, uh, there were still three of us at home. My older sister had gone off and got married. And so, but, you know, as a single mom and three kids, it was tough. So I ended up being the elder kind of uh, male in the family. And and I'd already, my dad was already, he had cancer, so he was already out of commission two years beforehand. So I was always working. I always had a job. I, I couldn't really, there was no allowance. It was it was up to me to, if I wanted a bike, I had to make, earn the money to buy a, a bike. You know, that yeah. was the way it was. Was that from the plant? I think so. Yeah, well, it's pretty, they're pretty sure. He worked in the middle of the, PCB oils in, in the plant where there was a welding line and wherever you have high arcing, yeah. you have PCB oils to prevent you know, flare-ups and fires. But almost all of the guys that he worked with uh, passed away you know, on before 50. You know, so, so it was definitely PCB oils. Yeah. So then you, you go to school for <clears throat> photography. Yeah, Ryerson. Yeah. And um, there's a great story here. The, the, the story is that your teacher gave you an assignment yeah, his, his name was Rob Gubler, who lived on Lippincott, which I understand that's his, you know, that's a near near where I live, near where you yeah, live, yeah. yeah. And uh, you might know the street. And uh, so, you know, he said, you know, my first assignment was go out and photograph evidence of man. Now that currently wouldn't be correct, course, yeah, but that was yeah. what it was in evidence the of humankind. We'll say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> evidence of humankind. Um, but that back then that was that was uh, okay, um, and. I went back to St. Catharines and started photographing the remnants of the Welland Canal. But I was thinking about, you know, that idea, you know, that, that you know, I can take the camera and to photograph evidence of humankind is to give yourself a kind of a hall pass to go out and observe humans and what they're doing. And I thought if I was going to bring something back to another intelligent species somewhere, somewhere on another planet – to show them what they're up to, what would I show them? And I thought, well, you know, there's many things you can show them. But from a photographic point of view, I thought, why not show the greatest technological uh, feats, the excavation of huge open pit mines, the building of metropolis, metropolises, the, the factories that go on and stretch endlessly. Um, you know, all of these things would be a fascinating kind of report card to some other intelligent civilization to how far along we've got in terms of uh, our own civilization and what we're doing. So it, it really did give me the kind of, I guess, a, a, a license to go out there and observe, even though I'm implicated in all of it, but I become the observer. And I think if you're a photographer, 
you know, you are in a way uh, by default in the observer mode, but this just gave me a chance to actually think of the whole species and our impact and, and understanding that, you know, when, even back then I, we were all looking at the human population growth. And when I was born, it was like 2.5 billion people, right? you know, and so in my lifetime, we've tripled or more than tripled as a population. So in that hockey stick curve, I also understood that resources were going to start to get scarce, that, you know, there's going to only so much farmland that be arable. There's only so much fresh water. There's only so much copper that's easily available. So I thought, you know, in my life, I might see even that we're going to move from a, a, a period of the land of plenty to the land of scarcity. And, and that I felt that by chronicling the large scale extractions that we do, whether it's deforestation or, or, or you know, even farming is an extraction, extractive resource. We're extracting nutrients out of the soils and we're taking, pushing forests back and creating soil. So the, that's the number one human um, event that we have that has shaped the planet more than anything is farming. Uh, and then, you know, urban sprawl and industrial, you know, landscapes from mining and quarrying. So these are all things that I thought um, made for an interesting uh, kind of life's work. It, it was a big enough idea that I can just go you, into it. You saw it then. You yeah. saw a life's work then. A life's work back then. Really? Yeah. When does the scale come to you? Because it's not just the large photographs, you know, I mean, some of your, some of your work is, is massive. It's also the things that you do photograph, you know, largest ships, you know, largest refinery homes. Where did the idea of, the, of that scale come to you, photographing very large things in large ways? Sort of like from the beginning. Really? 1981, I went to 1982. I was in Sudbury photographing the largest open pit mines in, in Canada, basically. Yeah. So I really began photographing the Sudbury mines. And then started to go out west and looked at them. And then I went to the Bingham Valley, which was the biggest copper mine in the world at the time. Uh, and then the other one in Chile, the Chukicamata uh, copper mine, I went to that afterwards. But those are two considered number one and number two jockeying for the largest open pit excavations in the world. Um, but so why? Like, why were you drawn to those? Because when you, when you go to the largest... Number one, it's it's it's, it's they're using the, the state of the art of technology in the lar largest examples of anything, um, the largest companies, uh, and in that scale, uh, there's a possibility of the surreal, uh, of the of the fact that you know I, I've been interested in making images that when you stand in front of it, you think that it comes from some alien planet that yeah. this isn't ours. But they are ours, right. you know. And, and to me, there's something uh, kind of, uh, you know, destabilizing when you look at something. And we look at millions of photographs, tens of thousands of them every day. So, but if you can get it in front of a photograph and you go, I don't know where I am. I don't know what this is. Yeah. Wh wh why am I being shown this? Or where's this come from? And what has? What does it have to do with me? Uh, or what's it have to do with anything? And those are, I think, fabulous questions to begin to ask when you're confronted by these large-scale, um, you know, places that I look for. And even in film, like when we did um, Manufactured Landscapes with Jennifer Beishwal and Nick DePonsier back in, in 2006, we were in China in 2005. And that opening shot, I don't know if you ever saw it, it's an eight-minute tracking shot of, of factory lines. And, and people, like, were going, like, where is this? What is this? Like, how, how can this be? You know? And it seems like, again, otherworldly, like, the, the, like the, the, that it shouldn't belong to our world. 
but it is and it's there and it's actually providing our coffee makers and our you know all the things that we buy at Nordstrom or wherever we go shopping you know Canadian Tire or whatever that that all comes from somewhere and all of those materials come from those open pit mines. When I look at some of the work and I look at the things that I have, whether it's a coffee maker or whether it's the gas in my car, I get a bit angry at myself for not realizing the environmental impact or the impact on the world that the things that I'm, I'm using are having. And it can be quite um, hard to be confronted with it through your, through your work sometimes. I'm not saying it's in, in a good way, but it can be quite hard, you know. Well, it's the dilemma we're in. I mean, it's, it's, you know, with technology, you know, we live a more comfortable life, you know, and, you know, we have heated homes, we're using natural gas, you know, just even think of natural gas. It's like, you know, comes out of Alberta, but it's, you know, comes out of the ground and there's a continuous pipe from Alberta all the way here and it's all branched off and it it comes right to our furnace or right to our cooktop. You know, it's kind of, you know, when you think of it, it's kind of an insane idea that there's a continuous pipe and if I followed it all, I'd end up in Alberta from my kitchen. You know, um, and, and yet we live in this complex world that we built and I think what's overwhelming is that it can be overwhelming. It can make us feel so small. Like, what can I do? This is such a, 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 a big thing. It's, you know, like how do we, you know, how do we detach ourselves from that natural gas? How do we detach ourselves from that oil? How do we not travel? How do we not get in a car or a taxi or an Uber? You know, how do we, um, you know, have food that we know, you know, isn't having a, a negative impact on, on, on some other, you know, life system that's out there or, or water system that's out there that's being depleted? You know, it's very, very hard to know what our even personal impact is. And so we kind of, I think we incrementally have to do things that make us feel better about it and, you know, and, and make the changes that we feel we can make. I mean, we all have to. And like I got an electric car five years ago and I just recently replaced in a country and now I can recharge it because I put some solar panels, I can recharge my car. And so now I'm running off the grid and I don't even look at the price of gas. You right. Know, it's kind of, so... So there's positive things that we can do, you know, reduce our consumption of meat. Yeah. But, you know, so we're all, we all have an ability. I did, I did that one recently. Yeah. I, yeah. I knocked down the meat consumption out of this whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I was raised Eastern European. So that's our daily diet, right, yeah. was meat. So it is, it's hard. You have to make these choices and you, just kind of, and you can't make a full break, but you certainly make deals with yourself. I'm going to only do it once a month or this is a special treat or blah, 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 you know. But we all have to find ways that we can do it. And then, of course, you know, the thing that, that is also concerning is I always say the two greatest tools that we have as individuals is our vote and our wallet. Yeah. You know, those are the two tools that can make a difference, you know. What do you hope when people come out of the subway and they look around at the Eaton Center and they look around at this kind of hub of commerce at Young and Dundas and they might be confronted through your work with where all these things might come from, whether it's the steel or whether it's the petroleum or whether it's the, the, the materials by which we have everything around them? I mean, what, what goes through your mind in terms of what you might want them to realize about the world around them through your work? Well. You know, even with the films and working with, again, Jennifer and Nick, we, we, we've always believed that, you know, if you can hit, get somebody, hit somebody emotionally, you know, right kind of at, in the gut, in the, in the heart, when you feel something, when you feel something and, and, and it kind of runs through you and it kind of gives you the shivers and you kind of like look at it and it leaves you kind of 
almost speechless, then, you know, then there's maybe that's a way to kind of penetrate. We need to penetrate because if you read an article, uh, 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 and it could be a, you know, a shocking article if you read it, or yeah. if you see a graph and somebody's saying, look at what's happening to CO2, or look at this and look at that, or look at the depletion of, uh, of this species or whatever. And you can look at those graphs and, and yeah, we can, uh, we can intellectually process that and we kind of get it. But then like, you know, 20 minutes later, you know, some shooting happens in the States and you're just boom, you're just like, okay, I just, but if you feel something, and and it, and it kind of penetrates you, and you haven't even been told that you should feel this way about it. It's just you know that that's the you know our job or as the creators of these things to understand how to get to that spot. And if you get there, and the and 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 the viewer kind of goes, oh my god, you know there is something here. I need to really think about this more. You know, uh, you know because it is the ultimate existential threat. I mean, I think there, I've always said there's two, all of nuclear war where we end the world in one day, yeah. you know, or, you know, this slower, more incremental one where our habitat disappears on us and then we don't get to be here. And, you know, so geopolitics and economy and all that are important. And what's happening in society is important, but we can't kind of take our eye off the fact that if we lose the control of the planet, we, we lose the game. Yeah, and that to me is the, the, the that that trumps everything in a way. So how do you do it? Like when you are you know hundreds of feet above an, an oil patch, or you're you know, or you are around these you know makeshift oil refineries, or you are you know um, being faced through your travels and through your work, standing there with a camera or hitched to a helicopter with a camera, looking at these symbols of our own destruction of the world. How do you not get? Emotional? How do you not get affected by that? Well, I, I think I, I used to more, and, and yeah. I think it's kind of like being an, a nurse in palliative care. You kind of yeah. have to build some some kind of protection, and you have, yeah, yeah. And, and and the grieving kind of. I went through that period, you know, uh, when I was doing work in India and, and Bangladesh, and, and just seeing humanity at that level. I was really emotional at that time. It took nothing for me to cry. I had little kids and I was looking at you know, poverty and, 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 and looking at how, you know, survival was in places like Bangladesh and, and, and India and kind of understanding the larger human context for what is really going on in the world today. And and, and then when you kind of go through the grieving process where you almost land is is – to search for meaning and to then help others to understand. And so in a way, it reinforced the fact that, you know, what I'm doing is hopefully has some positive effect and, and, and is. And, and when, I, when someone comes to me after a talk and says, you know, I, I saw your movie or, you know, I went to your exhibition or I saw you speak and then I, you know, I, I changed my career path and now I'm working in environmental studies or I'm trying to work in the sciences to see if we can find solutions to these problems. And to me, that's very fulfilling. It means it's somehow what I've done has allowed another younger person, you know, redefine their trajectory in life and to reprioritize. And I th think of myself as one of the many foot soldiers is going to take out there to shape you know, the the destiny of where we're going as a species because it's going to take a lot of people to change this, it, most of the, you know, humanity to change this. It was the ship breaking, wasn't it? I heard that was meaning. I mean, I, I saw those and I was blown away by them. Is that the one I'm talking about when you say yeah, Bangladesh? Sure, like, can yards. you describe those and, and tell me why they affected you so much? Well, you know, these are the largest vessels ever built 
by humans, the oil tankers. And, uh, you know, they're a football field and a half long. And, and so, you know, they, and, and actually it was Exxon Valdez that created a, a problem where it was a single-hulled oil tanker. And when it hit off the, off the coast of Alaska and then released all that oil that, you know, coated 1,000 miles, the, the insurance company said, no, we can't insure these. So you ha- they have to be double-hulled ships by, you know, 2005 was the anticipated time at that time. And I thought, okay, where did all these massive ships go to die? Like, what happens to them? And that was my interesting question. And I started researching, and the most of them were being broken in, in a place called the Lang in India. But I couldn't get in there. The, you know, photographers were persona non gratis at that point because they had exposed some of the ways in which they were working in the, 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 the kind of environmental disaster and the human you right. know, labor disaster. Uh, and so I thought, well, where's the next be- biggest place, which was Bangladesh, which actually ended up being more interesting because the ships were scattered on the beaches and there were some further out at water and some closer in. But the first day I arrived there, it was insane. It was like if I felt like Dickens, you know, being able to see the satanic mills, like stepping back 150 years to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And there was just piles of oil rags burning and plastic and asbestos everywhere. And then I, I see these two pyres, these two big smoldering pyres. And I said, what's that? And I said, oh, those are two workers from yesterday. They they were standing by a cable and it snapped and it, it bifurcated them. So they... They were standing there as two guys, and next thing you know, in a millisecond, there were four pieces, uh, and, and they just put them on a bur- pile and burned them that that day. You know, and no I'm, wonder you felt. I'm, okay. I'm looking around, going, I didn't know this is possible. I didn't know this world could exist. That I'm I'm living in this time, and it, it reminded me that when we live in our own world in our own time, there are so many parallel worlds that are out there that we can't imagine. So that's another thing I think that travel and getting outside of your comfort world and seeing what's out there is, is really fascinating. How do you, how do you do artistic work then? Like how do you do aesthetic and compositional work when confronted by something like this? I suppose you could say the same thing about any photojournalist going into a war zone or anything like that. You're, you know, you because you, I, I think compositionally, I think to me, it's not a, as much of a conscious process as it is a, an intuitive process. And 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 I think it's just through time, you learn yeah. how, where it is and what what feels right. So you put you know you put the lens to your eye and the camera to your eye, the eyepiece to your eye. You just go to it. It's right. just, so I don't have to necessarily be overly conscious. And I was actually really sick. I got really sick there as well. I got strep throat, and it was um, so I was like. You know, you know, framing underneath black cloth, and and then turning around and throwing up, and then getting back under the black cloth. In some of my best images, I made under under those kind of you know high duress you know moments, and and so, which goes to show, it's you don't have to be in an ideal state to make interesting work. It's about how you're viewing it and what you're seeing. And there was in that first trip, there was this immediacy. I think I think in in, in what I was seeing, and I had to kind of get it on film. With four by five, it was there was this kind of real reacting to a space, and and I think those images still live on as some of my most uh, n- n- notable images over throughout my career. I know this might be a dangerous question to ask you, but it, I was thinking about I interviewed David Suzuki this morning, and he said something that seemed at the time um, really lovely to me. But in, now that I've thought a little bit more about it, it's been sticking with me a little bit. He's doing this play, as I'm sure you know, about how 
it's only through love and compassion that we may be able to save the planet, our love for one another, and the love for our planet can mirror the love we have for one another. But what he said that stuck with me is that he said, Tom, you know, I've been doing the nature of things and presenting facts and doing everything right, and it's just not working. I mean, still, and things are still, I mean, we're still careening towards a major climate crisis if we're not already there now. How are you with the faith that images can, can do some of this work? Well, it's images in conjunction with so many other things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really part of it. I think, you know, as artists, and you know, images are part of the, our storytelling. The images bring us worlds that we wouldn't normally, you know, have a chance to see or, or brought in ways in which we can comprehend them. And I, and I think there's a role for it, but the, as there is a role for politics, as there is a role for corporations, as there is a role for every individual. And, you know, so I think it, it can't be... Um, simplified in that way. I, I think it, it, it's. I believe that you know dialogue is important. That, that that you know you have to open open up the dialogue. You have to you know try and get the tent to be bigger. Those who are on the edge. There's going to be some people out there. No matter what happens, don't want to change. Whether they're you know baked in interests that they say this isn't going to work to my benefit. I don't care. Yeah. Um, or they're afraid. Or they're afraid. Or you know, I don't. I don't want the party to be over. I just want to. You know, yeah. things look okay to me. I walked outside and it's a nice day. What's wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It got cold in the winter time. What's cold. the problem? Yeah, what's the problem? Yeah. So, so you can just say, yeah, it's all fine. You know, I'm not going to worry about it. But you know, but if you can make people yeah. think, okay, there's something here, and get them under the tent, and that change. I mean, and it's it's kind of like an individual at a time. Everybody has to come to that on their own, and and has to feel that. And I like for my own. I, I agree. With with David and that you have to I, I fell in love with the the natural I love the camping and I love going out into the wilderness canoeing you know ra, you know you know whitewater canoeing and, and and camping and being out there and and the kind of what I felt as a Canadian as and, and part of my heritage of coming to this country you know because my parents were from the Ukraine but but the fact that there was this massive kind of natural playground that we had. If you don't, if you're a Canadian, you've never gone out there and experienced it. You've missed what most of Canada is about. Yeah. You know, there's 85% of us live within 100 kilometers of the American border, but ever, the rest of it's up there. And that's where it's, it's crazy. And to understand that this is, when you go out there and you're sitting there and you're saying, this is what nature, this is what the, you know, the planet intended for this place, this this is the trees that are meant to be there. These are the rocks. This is the these are the animals that were always here. So you're you're kind of getting a window into deep geological time. So that's why you start in the wake of progress with those trees. That's why. That's because it. it shows you the the beginning. Yeah. Like what's supposed to be here. That's what was here. Here. That's the grove that was here. The grove for Dundas Square was a grove 500 years ago. Really. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a First Nations trading post, and, yeah. and and I should actually do the research to find out exactly how long it's been that, and what it was, and are those records even there? But okay, let's say even before it was a trading post for the First Nature, it was a forest, you know. Um, and in geological time, you know, even ten thousand years is a blink, you know. Yeah, the, the most powerful land acknowledgement I've ever seen. It was um, someone got up and they said. Um, first they said, you know, we're, we're on the traditional territory of, and then they said, think about what this place looked like a hundred years ago. And it was, we were in a theater and I said, oh, that's nice. You know, I get a picture of that, you know, think about what this place looked like 300 years ago. And, I, and then they said a thousand years ago and I was thinking, okay. And then they said, think about it 10,000 years ago. And it brought that permanence to me that I, where I was standing was a field, where I was standing was a trading post, where I was standing had this history before me, you know? Yeah. 
It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a powerful thing. And, and I think what was powerful about that was that um, it was sort of presented to everybody in that room. Everybody in that room at the same time had to think about it. And the, the reason that comes to mind is because this work that you're doing, whether it's Young and Undas or at the C, this, going to the COC, COC yeah. that's, that's people who wouldn't normally go to an art gallery are going to be able to see this. Um, people who, uh, members of the general public are going to be able to see this. What does that mean to you? Well, I love that. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, that accident of somebody who is not, you know, you, you know it's not their normal daily routine or, or weekly routine to go to the AGO or something. And all of a sudden, you know, the, this experience uh, is out there on the street. I mean, I, I've always loved the public square and, and even, you know, I've been on the board with contact, uh, the photography festival for twenty years, uh, and and you know that's something that we've always fought for is to take over the billboards, take over the street, bring art you know into the square, so to speak, and, and so that everybody gets to experience it. Let me reintroduce you one more time. Uh, my conversation is with the renowned Canadian photographer Edward Bertinsky. We're talking about his long career, his latest project, In the Wake of Progress. Um, you mentioned there that your your parents are from Ukraine. Um, and, that, and that came to mind because uh, you won the prize for Outstanding Contribution to Photography at the 2022 Sony World Photography Awards in London back in April. And you shared it with uh, photographers and artists in Ukraine. Tell me about that decision. Well, um, my parents both uh, came from the Ukraine. Both were displaced uh, by the uh, Second World War. My mother, in particular, had to live through, you know, the period in in thirty one, thirty two. Is the, it's called the Holodomor, the Great Starvation, where the estimate is ten million Ukrainians were starved to death when Stalin came in and just took all the food in the collective kind of um, approach to to redistribution, but. The problem with it, they never came back with anything. They just took it all, yeah. uh, two, three years in a row, and and um, and people were starving. My, my mother was in a town where 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 the you know grain was taken, so she survived that with her father and her family. And then um, she was seven or eight years old at the time, and then seventeen, um, the Germans come, and they actually at first because of the terror of 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 that period with the Russians, they. Felt that the you know Germans were actually their liberators, only to find out that they rounded them up and she became a slave on a uh, on a farm in Germany to you know um, you know produce food for the war effort, and she spent four years to the end of the war, and then five years in Germany to try and figure out how to how to leave. She didn't want to go back to Ukraine, so she ended up uh, um, getting married in in Germany and coming to. Canada and Kapuskasing actually where where she landed. So and then my mother was a real, you know, kind of advocate for the freeing of Ukraine. She was a president of the Women's League for the Freeing of Ukraine. And this happened and I thought, you know, and I haven't been to Ukraine for all the places I've gone. I've never been. I was planning to go, but the COVID, ever I have never been. Didn't you grow up speaking Ukrainian? I did. So I can speak the language. I just for whatever reason I haven't my paths haven't gone there. I find that very surprising, Ed. I am. Me saying yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to go, yeah. but uh, 2021 was on my list of, of places to go. Then, yeah, of course. That, of so course. now I'm planning to go once you know, yeah. it's safe to go. Yeah. I'll go. But I'm sponsoring uh, a photographer there as well. Uh, and um, you know, his name's Maxim Dunduke, and he's doing fantastic work. And uh, you know, I hope maybe the, to, to publish a book on it, uh, on on this war, and, and and bring some of those stories forward. And and so I, but I think, 
dedicating it to those who, you know, were just, you know, every day working as artists and photographers and now they're become war photographers and 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 they're putting themselves at risk in the front lines and, and I thought it's important for us to see what's happening. It's important for this to be chronicled and and um so it felt um it, it felt like the right thing to to share the award. Your mom's still with us. Yeah, she's ninety eight. Can I ask her name? Mary, Mary Bertinsky. How is she doing watching the news? I mean, you, when you say that she was part of um, the, the you know, organization to liberate Ukraine, I mean, everything that she lived through, what, how is she watching the news now? It's a little despondent. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, she's getting less and less mobile. Her mind's still crisp and she remembers everything and her body, she can still move, but slowly. Um, and I think it's... In a lot of ways, she she sometimes says, you know, I wish I didn't have to see this, you know, uh, you know, and of course she watches a lot of news because she's in a room and in the retirement home, and that's one of the things you do. But and I feel for her, you know, uh, you know, because it's to have to witness this um, is is very hard. I mean, and and uh, to have to almost relive the, the, the trauma that the country had been through that she went through with it and now it's being traumatized again and the amount of grief and trauma of this war will be far and wide. Yeah. I'm sort of stuck by something you said at the very, very beginning. When you told me about your dad and that your dad and I said and I'm not I'm I'm a banjo player. I'm not a psychologist. Um your your dad dies and, and we can we can safely assume that, that the inhalation of his of, of of the chemicals at the plant had something to do with it. I mean, I think he told me that none of them lived to be 50 in, yep. his, in his part. And then you go, he dies, and then you go into this work sort of exposing industry. Like I see a connection there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's and actually it's more like um, you absorb it through your skin. So it's the touching of the oil that gets through your skin. Okay. That you, that, that, oh, that you rather than from, inhalation. You don't inhale it. Oh, okay. it, it it's touching it, touching the machinery with, the, with that oil on okay. it. It actually had the job at 18 to remove all those oils from that plant. You did. I did. You had the jobs to remove the, the oils, oils that yeah. may have killed your father. Yeah. yeah. Oh my it's, God. Yeah. So, uh, so in a way I, I understood industry, you know, um, that we invent things and we don't understand their dangers that we don't really fully comprehend the consequence um, and because he knew he was dying, he got diagnosed when he was 40 and, and it was tough. It was tough. He wanted, he knew he was leaving and we had a heart and it's always tough, even, you know, normal with dad's son. Mm -hmm. And with that, with him knowing that his life was being taken, he was angry. He had, he had his life stolen from him, you know, by the Germans. And, you know, he had lived in the Carpathian mountains and a simple life in them, you know, and, and now, you know, the, all of this had happened. So, he he had anger. He was anger, an angry man as well. And um, so, you know, there's things I got from him that were great and there are things that, that weren't great. But seeing that world and understanding what happened to all of his fellow workers uh, and, you know, and, and then seeing that, uh, even when I was doing work on quarries, you know, I, I, I went to the I, – I researched it and, and in the 50s they discovered that they could – you know, yield a lot more stone by cutting with diamond cutters, but the the, the actual um, dust that comes up um, would give them uh, silicosis of the lungs, so it would be coated with all of the silica, and they would die young. And there was this whole generation of men that died, and all they needed to do 
was spray water on the, on, on, on the blade to stop the dust and, and, that, and, the, and the problem went away. It was as simple as that. They just didn't know. So I, I understood that and, and we, we constantly do this. We're constantly starting things, bringing new things into the world, new this, new that, not really fully understanding what the downstream consequences are. Like when, when plastic first came, it was like, whoa, look at all the things it can do. And now it's like it's clogging up the oceans. Yeah. You know? So we're, there, there's, there's always this – anything we invent, it just always seems to be about half as negative and half as positive. We can't seem to just always be on the positive ledger. So I, it was a big lesson in life in, in, in that you know, we're engaged in stuff that we don't know what the long-term – effects of them are and at a large scale. And so it is, uh, you know, the time we live in and it's technology. It's like how many new chemicals come into the world every year? Thousands. What do we know about them? Not much. Um, And yet they get put into things. We test, we think they're okay. They go into the world. Well, we put them out of mind. We put it out of mind. We put we put where things come from out of mind. We put chemicals out of mind. We put destruction. We just focus on the rollerblades. We focus on the cell phone. Yeah. That's the great service of your work is that it can often remind us of the actual impact of the world that the things we take for granted have. However, I understand that this might be the – is this the end of the chapter of those sort of large-scale industrial photographs? You know, it feels like I'm – like the chapters of – I'm running out of chapters and this is almost like a completion of a book. When you say end of the book, does that mean this is retirement? Does that mean – No, the- not really. I mean I'm saying I will pick – very carefully pick things that might add to it. But there's nothing really that I can think of that I haven't touched in terms of – you know, so maybe there are other places that I can go. Like I've gone to – I've been photographing mines for, you know, my first one was 1981 and I still did some mines, you know, last year. So, you know, that's 40 years in which I've, you know, every few years I get in front of some mines. Quarries I did for 18 years. Um, You know, so I've done all these subjects for long periods of time. And I sometimes I feel like, you know, can I add anything else that I haven't already added to it? Is there something else? If something comes up, I'm not going to ignore it, but... Mm -hmm. I think uh, the, 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 that arc has been kind of well-papered, so to speak. And so no next project for you? Nothing like that, no. Not like I'm going off to do this, you know, um, you know industry because I think I've – I can't think of anything that I haven't done. It's an amazing career, man. It's an amazing career and, and how, it all, how it all came together is so fascinating and so personal and yet so universal at the same time. Yeah, okay, thank nice, you, Tom. Nice to talk to you. Edward Bertinsky is a Canadian photographer. His career retrospective called In the Wake of Progress is coming to the Canadian Opera Company Theatre in Toronto at the end of this month. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Next week on the show, you're going to hear from an artist named Daphne Boyer. She uses a technique that generations of Métis artists have used to embellish clothing and accessories 
beating. But the way Daphne does it is a little different. Actually, it's a, a fair bit different. Instead of using the glass beads that she and her ancestors have used in the past, she uses berries and seeds. And instead of embroidering them, she photographs the berries and seeds and then digitally lays them out into intricate patterns that tell stories about herself and about her family. She prints these images onto fabric and makes big installations, like one called Birthing Tent, which is so big you can walk under it. Here's Daphne uh, speaking to us from Victoria, B.C., about that particular piece. So the Birthing Tent is a 20-foot wide piece of cotton uh, velvet that's printed with an oxytocin molecule. So the oxytocin, beaded version of the oxytocin molecule. So every one of the atoms in the um, in the the molecule looks is beaded. So and 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 it actually looks like a galaxy when you look up above you. It looks like you're looking at a starry night. The so then that that becomes the tent canopy and it's hung like a woman's bosom. You know, so that when you walk in underneath it, the idea was I wanted people to feel embraced. And the reason I did that was because my great-grandma, Eleanor Amelin, was born on a buffalo hunt. And she worked um, as a itinerant midwife on in the northern Great Plains. Mm. So she, um, her husband was a plains hunter and and uh, a trader and ran an outpost. And I think Eleanor really loved getting away from the household and going out to the... She would stay for weeks and sometimes months with pregnant women where I'm sure she had a status that she never had at home. Mm -hmm. Um, She smoked a pipe. And so this work was about her. It was about the history of of midwifery in Indigenous communities. This is before obstetrics came on and it became professionalized. But and um, so that's the canopy, and it also has um, silk ribbons that are printed on silk twill, and they're hung in, in the four cardinal points of the of the tent. And the ribbons make a reference to ribbon skirts, which are um, a rite of passage for Indigenous women, and they also are used to mark the missing and murdered Indigenous mm-hmm. women and girls and two-spirit people. So that that's. Um, that's it. That kind of sums it up. But it's very colorful, and the ribbons yeah. float when you walk by them. Um, and the oxytocin molecule references the cohesive nature of the Métis people, who my great-great-great-grandfather was one of the first leaders of the hunt, and Solomon Amelin. And, um, you know, when people, the whole communities would migrate out onto the plains, and everyone had a role to play. It was dangerous work. And they they had to know who was who and you know what everybody's role was. They had to be in sync, and that um, was was really a beautiful part of of where we come from. The artist Daphne Boyer talking about one of her many artworks that use digital beading to tell stories of her Métis heritage. You'll hear Daphne on cue next Tuesday, and if you're in Calgary, you can see her work right now at Fort Calgary. So I'm going to play you two clips from two different movies, one in French, one in English. They both tell pretty much the same story. So here's the first one. It came out about 20 years ago. Here's the same speech in English 10 years later. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to announce that a doctor is coming for one month. If the doctor chooses to stay here, we get to the factory. What do the factory make? They make jobs. Who wants to work again? That's from a movie called The Grand Seduction, and it tells the story of a small fishing town down on its luck and its townspeople's efforts to convince a doctor to stay permanently. If the town gets a doctor, it also gets the go-ahead for a big job-creating family. Uh, A factory, I should say. It's a pretty beloved story, one that's now becoming a musical. It's called Telltale Harbor. One of the guys behind it is the great Alan Doyle, who you might know from Great Big Sea or his solo career or from generally being best kind. He stars in the musical as well. And Alan Doyle joins me now live from Charlottetown. How are you? Oh, how are you? Thanks so much for having me on. It's an exciting day here in Charlottetown. Well, it's an exciting day in Charlottetown because it's the first preview, the first time this show will be in front of an audience tonight. Alan, you've done like thousands and thousands of concerts. How does how are you feeling today? Oh, it's a whole new kind of butterflies, you know, because it's a brand new genre for me. And luckily, I'm surrounded by incredible people at the Confed Center. The cast are incredible. Jillian Kylie, our director, is amazing, of course. The mighty Bob Foster is in the pit. Adam Brazier and Ed Rich are part of the creative team. I'm feeling confident, but, you know, I, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I told you I wasn't uh, – uh, if I wasn't a bit terrified here today because it's such a it's such a new outlet, but it's so fun. I mean, it got to be different than being in, in your band. It got to be different than standing on stage and, and delivering your own songs. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially with, you know, my solo band with Corey and Kendall and all the gang. It's just, you know, it's 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 different every night. Right. And it's like we encourage that kind of variety and difference and improvisation and and that kind of, you know, casual night of song. Whereas this, of course, is a, of course, is a coordinated effort of performance and music and band and lighting and technology and stagecraft and it's just it is a, it's it's a miracle it ever works to be honest with you <laughs> coming from our world but it's it's um it's a beautiful thing when it does and it's going to be a beautiful summer here in Charlottetown. when did you first see the grand seduction like the original film oh i saw the movie i think when all the rest of us did when it came out you know the brendan gleason mark critch uh, Gordon Pinson version, uh, whenever that was, you know, over a decade ago, I guess. And, and, but it was really Adam Brazier, uh, from who's the creative director here at, uh, Charlottetown Festival, uh, who's, who saw it. Uh, he tells a story famously of when he was in, in hospital and he was watching it, uh, the, the, uh, Grand Seduction and just instantly thought it would make for a great stage play and a musical stage play because it has all that kind of things that make for great musical comedy, right? Like deception and hijinks and, uh, you know, uh, false truths and exaggeration and uh, so and fish out of water story and a love story. And like it's so, yeah, I, I, I really the original idea was Adams. And then he brought it to the mighty Bob Foster, who people will know from being one of the music directors for Come From Away in Toronto, amongst a million other things. And then they came to me about writing songs for it, which I was happy to do. And then I grew to love it so much that I wanted to play one of the roles. So I play Frank, the head conjurer of Telltale Harbor. The guy who tries to convince everybody that not only getting the doctor is possible, but is basically in the can. Just follow these few simple steps and we'll convince our doctor and we'll get the plant. Why, what did you like about it? Like, what did you see it in it to that would make you want to take part in it? That, that make you not just want to write the songs for it, but also be in it? It's a story about how important home is, you know, and I don't need to tell you how important home is yeah. to people from Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, and I guess Atlantic Canadian Canada in general. And so there was a real, there's a heart to this story. That's, that's at times um, over, even overwhelms the comedy of it. It's just, it's such a heartfelt uh, 
story of people trying to save what's most important to them. And what's important to them is their home. And that's a combination of the earth and the, and the, and the water that they live on and around and each other's company, you know? So it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a strange thing, you know, to have a show um, happen this much. I mean, I mentioned off the top of the, the it was originally a fir- first a French language movie. Then 10 years later, it gets remade in English. And then it was adapted as a play starring Michel Rivard in, in Montreal. Like there is something universal maybe to all Canadians or to all people about about this story you know I, I think it's really the the notion that we we all love a uh, a place that loves you know having people visit it and a, a place that is important to the people who inhabit it and I always talked about Newfoundland Labrador in that regard you know is that one of the great things about visiting Newfoundland and Labrador is the fact that people from Newfoundland and Labrador want you to visit Newfoundland and Labrador you know and and <laughs> and and uh, and, and Telltale Harbor is very much in that ilk. You know, it's it's very proud of itself. Uh, you know, and uh, even in my character's case, to a delusional point, <laughs> where he thinks the greatest place in the world is Telltale Harbor, without a doubt. So it's a uh, you know, and they and they have the shoulders of their parents and their grandparents, and 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 so it speaks of you know those things of you know if a town like Telltale Harbor shuts down, you know the people who leave aren't the only ones being left, right? You're leaving behind generations of graves and you're leaving behind history and you're leaving behind tradition. And, and so it's, it's, it's a very timely story uh, for the protection of small towns and, and rural life, I suppose, but also just for people who love where they're from. Alan, how is it going? How is you as an actor going? Like, how, how are you finding it? It is terrifying. <laughs> I don't mind admitting it. Just like every performance art should be, I suppose. It's it's a real um, it's a real act of coordination, like I would have never imagined. Tom, tell you the truth, it's uh, you know, I mean, I'm again, I'm blessed to be surrounded by incredibly talented people who have done this kind of performance for a long time in many other cases. And uh, of course, being a part of the storied Charlottetown Festival, which has been putting on shows of this caliber, you know, since the mid sixties. And so I, I feel comforted from the company I'm keeping and uh, sort of lucky to be in their circle. And I kind of feel like, you know, once again, in my lucky life, you know, I get to dance in someone else's backyard, you know, like, you know, my friends asked me to be in their movies or they asked me to write books or they asked me to, you know, in this case, I got invited to be in a musical. So I constantly find myself in uh, in the company of people who are very experienced and generous. And I am the novice new guy who's trying his best to keep up. What, one of the people you find yourself in the company of, uh, as you mentioned, there is Bob Foster, you know, one the musical director for another show set in our part of the world, Atlantic Canada, Come From Away. Given this is your first time writing for a musical, what did you learn from him? Oh, a ton about storytelling through song. And, of course, Bob comes from uh, a Celtic background as well, in, in originally from the northern part of England. And I think one of the cool things is that Bob sees an, in in regions of the world a, a uniqueness that's that's to be fostered right and forgive the name pun but the uh, it's it's a real it's a real thrill to work with someone who knows 20 different musical worlds that I don't know and for him to see value in you know the accordion for example or the you know or a sea shanty or an acapella song and 
I, I, you know, it's just, it was just great fun and it remains great fun to collaborate with him and Adam and Ed and Jill and all the gang. And, and the songwriting of it, of course, is a, is a whole new trick for me, right? Because I'm used to writing songs for me or for other bands that to sing that are three minutes long, that stand alone and are, you know, good or bad in and of themselves. But of course, this is a different trick altogether where the, the only way I can describe it in the best analogy is that writing songs for a musical is like being a part of a Rubik's Cube, right? So you're the songwriting side, so you're the blue side. And three or four times during the, during the creation of it all, uh, you might go, yeah, I got the blue side totally slined up. It's all awesome. But then the tech side, which is green, and the storytelling side, which is yellow, both come to you and go, yeah, but when you turn that last time, you shagged us up. So now we've got to redo it again. <laughs> and it's, and I, I think for any successful musical, you would have to constantly be forwarding uh, in parallel. And every department has to constantly help the other one. Or I just, it would just all go you know, sideways so quickly. What surprised you the most about the process of being and writing and, and all that stuff in a musical? I, th- I think the the absolute mountain of artistic effort that is required to even get it to stage one, let alone like here we are today to stage, you know, 1130 or whatever you want to call it. The, it is a mountain of artistic labor like I cannot describe to you. And everybody has to be in it 100% up to their neck <laughs> or it's just, it would never get done. Like, it's just like the amount of things that have to happen, you know, not only uh, in concert or at the same time or in parallel, but have to happen every night in concert in, <laughs> in parallel. Like, you know, there's a, you know, a light that needs to go on a person who's standing with a shirt on, who's holding a can that got handed to him on the third beat of bar 56, where the fiddle starts its thing, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's really, really, truly amazing. And I can see why when they work, why musicals just last forever because it's magic, man. The, the show premieres. So the first preview is tonight. The show premieres to public uh, audiences or I guess to the to the general audience on June 23rd. And it runs all summer. People are going to be able to see it in Charlottetown. Yeah, it runs in summer. And we I, I hear from uh, we do four shows a week in concert with the amazing version of Anne of Green Gables they're putting on this year. You should check it out. It's incredible. And uh, on the main stage. And then there's a few other smaller shows kicking around Charlottetown, part of the festival. And then as soon as we wrap up here in uh, the last week of September, we go on a, a small tour of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, which should be super fun as well. So, yeah, it's going to be a lot of Frank and Telltale Harbor for me for the next little while. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. So can you – so we're going to play a song, and I, I believe this is the debut. This is the first time people yeah. will be hearing a song from the show. And given that it's from the show, can you set up uh, kind of what, what the context is of this sure. song and then a little bit about the song itself? You're about to hear My Family. It is indeed the world global debut of it. This is from the original soundtrack cast recording that myself and Bob Foster produced and uh, Corey Tetford mixed and mastered. And uh, um, it is, uh, this is the closing song of Act One and is kind of our theme in our show. You'll hear my voice. I play Frank, where I'm explaining to the doctor, uh, Dr. Chris, who's uh, asked me why I love Telltale Harbor so much. And this is it. This is my family from Telltale Harbor. Alan, thanks. Congratulations on it. I'll see you soon. Thanks so much. Here's Alan Doyle with the cast of Telltale Harbor, the debut of my family. I never knew my old man. He disappeared without a trace. I never felt his hand upon my face. I never saw him smiling. I never sat up on his knees. 
never sang a single song to me These hills, they are my father My mother is the sky My sisters are the meadows With my brothers on the tides Alan Doyle and the cast of the musical Telltale Harbor previews start tonight in Charlottetown at the Confederation Center of the Arts. The show premieres on June 23rd. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, you're going to hear my conversation with Jay Douglas, who is a Canadian reggae legend a formative presence in Canadian reggae. In fact, he he tells a pretty amazing story about what the music scene in Canada was like when he got here. There wasn't a whole lot of reggae. And now, you know, uh, reggae-influenced music, dance hall music from Canada is some of the biggest music in the entire world. He also talks about his new album, why he said he's waited a lifetime to make it, and why you can't have reggae without the blues. All right, we'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.